Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. In today's episode, we have David McConville and Don Danby uh, joining me from Spherical Studios um, and their home out in Oakland, California. Uh, episode was pretty amazing. They have uh, a really deep understanding of regenerative design from a holistic perspective, deeply imbued by the work of Buckminster Fuller. And um, the conversation today um, really runs the gamut. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to having David and Don back on the podcast in the future. Um, enjoy. Boom. Welcome Boom. to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. David and Don, I'm so excited to have you all. Um, two of my favorite um, regenerati or regenerates or um, <laughs> however, however we want to say it. Um, I'm excited to dig in and um, I'd love it if you wanted to just each do a quick introduction to the audience about um, what you're passionate about and um, what feels like, you know, if you were to name an imperative for, mm. for our age, what, mm. that feels, what feels true to you? Ah, I'm nominated. Well, thanks for having us, of course. It's always a pleasure, and it's a good excuse to hang out with you for a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's see. What passions? Uh, the first thing, actually, when you when you just said that, since we had no run up to this, and you very explicitly did not want to give us any kind of heads up on conversational topics, the first thing that came to mind was um, context. That I was, I had a flash in, in my own work of the past twenty years or so. Um, I've been attempting various techniques, particularly experiential techniques, for understanding the nested scales of our existence, of the context within which we find ourselves. And that's not just spatial context, but kind of temporal context and even kind of spectral and relational context. And I think that plays into the second part of your question in that I feel that the decontextualization is such a significant aspect of why so many things are going haywire at the moment mm. because there's not a deeper sense of particularly the re relational context you know that they're they're in many ways intentionally broken by a system um, that depends on us actually not being attuned to the relationality of our existence and so much of what we're experiencing now is sort of a reconnection to that context Small beings, small beings of all kinds Speaking are part of, context, of our context. Yeah. Um, so I've been, um, I think we crossed paths and I've kind of crossed paths with, with this community in the last three years um, after having spent many years, a couple decades, uh, working in what was originally called ecological design and then became sustainable design and then increasingly over that time became got further and further away 
from looking at life systems. And so, you know, what I was doing around what was called sustainability in, in the design world, um, looking at buildings and infrastructure and all the, the huge amounts of material flows going around the world, um, which I got really deep into um, for many years, was that we got further and further away from looking at anything besides just materials and energy that could lead to kind of power for mm -hmm. human systems. Mm -hmm. um, so energy in the form really of electricity and, and uh, materials in the form of what could be manufactured or built. And um, all of which is important work and interesting work and, and uh, fundamentally when done well is all about looking at systems and relationality and context. Uh, but after 20 years of that, I found myself completely uh, disconnected from life systems to the point that when introduced to the ideas around regeneration, I couldn't see them. I literally couldn't even conceive that given how hard it was to do sustainable design or greener products or whatever it was, my original work was in industrial design and manufacturing. It was so hard. You were working up against so many systems that I couldn't imagine a context in which we could heal systems, that we could heal life, um, and couldn't imagine either how we could use all the tools that I've been involved in for 20 years to do that. Mm. So it, it kind of led to a, a strange pause in nihilism. <laughs> and, it's, and now I've been in this really um, almost like healing myself by healing my thinking in the last two years or three years to realize uh, what is possible, what, what the potentials really are, and therefore what are the, what's the science, what are the narratives, what are, who are the practitioners, what's the world uh, that's already here that needs to be given so much more attention and love. And so in a lot of ways we're, we're working at Spherical to be assistive to that transition or those transitions. Well, let's dive straight into, uh, thank you both for that. That's fantastic introduction. I, I mean, where, where I'm inclined to go is, you know, maybe sort of pulling two threads and trying to weave them together. One is, one is this really great provocation that um, David um, made during his sort of introductory um, uh, monologue, I don't know what to, to call it. Not that it was a monologue, but his introduction, introductory statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, around context and, and the, the, the imperative of reclaiming and regenerating context. And then the other one, which feels like it's an imperative, Don, that you're inviting us into that sort of felt a little bit more embedded, so I'm, but I'm going to take a crack at pulling it out, which is potential and actually embracing the potential of living systems and of life and of humanity and starting there and honoring it and seeing it, being able to see it, being courageous enough to see it and to pull it out. And so I want to kind of like hold those two threads. And I want to start by asking Don, what is the potential that you're reconnecting with? Can you give us an image? Can you invite us into an image of what you were unable or unwilling to see as possible, but now you're sort of holding? even if tenderly. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the huh, 
I'm recognizing that, that you know, for, for 10 of the last 20 years, I worked in the technology industry um, and leading sustainable design at a large In this Whoa. moment, above our heads, squirrel and a dog. Between the squirrels and the dogs, it's taking place. It's a pitch battle right above our heads, quite literally, in the native buckeye, right here. Um, <laughs> um, so we're going, to, we're going to manage that in real time. But in in that context, there were I encountered a lot of different visions of the future, right, and that, that those were paid for by people who had an interest in particular futures coming about, uh-huh. right? So, you know, if you, and I've been in a lot of these kind of foresight projects and different kinds of initiatives where we are trying to imagine where we might go. Um, but, you know, anybody who's paying for that always writes themselves into the starring role. And so right. what I what I would observe is just that it, you know, in watching that and having that, that experience over and over, it felt to me that I was encountering and, and in fact sort of being overwhelmed by lots of really biased futures that were technocentric, that were blind to life systems, and therefore the potential that was being offered up, that was being, um, that was kind of always pointed to as inevitable, always had a, as a focus, an intensification of the technical systems, you know, a simplification of systems. And so the longer I, that, I, that I've spent kind of unwinding from, from those, those narratives and those futures and seeing what humans are capable of, even on a very small, in a small place, like within a community or within their own land, that there's real, the realization that life systems have this extraordinary power to do what we hoped we would see in the green building sector, which is that like, oh, if you, you know, if you're designing a building to, to accept sunlight and you're looking at where the air flows and you're thinking about the thickness of the walls and you're looking at all of those interrelated contexts, all of a sudden you get something that works so much better and uh, many, many times better because you're stacking all the functions in a building the way that you would stack functions in a landscape. And being able to finally see that, even at a microcosm level, makes it easier to imagine into what it would look like for us to be healing lands, healing ourselves um, at much larger scales, you know, even collectively at planetary scales. It's like the, it feels like the most audacious thought to hold. Well, let's right? go into that audacious thought. Like, right? what? what what do you think is possible? What do you think is possible that your impression is that other people are unwilling to think is possible? Mm. Are you on that? No. I want to hear you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have lots of thoughts. But <laughs> what do I think is possible? Hmm. I think in some ways the practice of, of looking um, looking into the future sometimes always defaults back to what's probable given what trajectory we're already on. So if we look around, we think, okay, all systems are, are kind of in fast and slow and uneven forms of collapse. So that's likely that that will just play out. And um, that's a really easy thing to hold. Um, 
it's probably the easiest thing to hold. In fact, I, I often say that I'm more well armed for nihilism than the vast majority of people because I've spent more time as many, you know, <laughs> as many of us in our community looking at um, looking into the darkness, right? So it takes, I think, um, a lot to be able to to see all, to, to, to kind of hold all that darkness and yet kind of find cracks of light and imagine into how, how a narrative can, can change very quickly. Well, so let so, me ask more, let, let's just like set some framing. So let's just say, <laughs> probabilistically, most likely scenario is, you know, multi-system planetary collapse, at least from the human perspective. Um, let's just put a number out there. Let's say, we have a 3% chance or something to, to like, for that to not be true, for there to be some sort of smooth path transition in which our economy evolves and transforms to be um, deeply embedded in the living systems and increasing complexity and increasing resilience and increasing health of the biosphere and humans and the other you know, greater than human living um, holes that we're a part of. Let's say there's a 3% chance. How do we double, what, what, are, what is, if you were to just choose one or two nodes to, to engage with, how do we double that to 6%? Yeah. So I think there's a thousand, thousand different nodes and we never know which one's going to work. So we got to try a bunch of them. <laughs> but, um, you know, because I, I could argue, I think I could argue that what we, we need to change the finance system. We need to change the, the worldviews. We need to change the policy. There's a lot of different Is there points. something, though, that is deeper than that, that if you hit it, it changes many of those things, maybe in a nonlinear way? I don't know if I can answer this, but I'm going to tell you what I think today, right. <laughs> which is that... Uh, and because, I, because I've been obsessing over, over the particular types of futures that we've been fed, I actually think that it's hard to live into uh, a, a future that, is, that involves healing, that involves inclusion, that involves planetary regeneration, unless we tell ourselves that story. So regardless of whether the instrument ends up being something like incredible transformations of how capital gets moved or what policy things happen or what inventions uh, are devised that allow us to in real time assess the health of our ecosystems on, on land and in water all those things will be assistive but none of them will really necessarily add up to the narrative view and so i do i do think that there's that there's a challenge that, we're, that we have, which is being able to even imagine into a particular future and that that is the story that the finance people will need. That's the story the policy people will need. That's the story that the technology people will need. Yeah, so storytelling. So the node is, in fact, having a coherent story of healing, regeneration, uh, connection, to use to but steal a term from Charles Eisenstein, sort of like the interbeing story. Yeah, that that is that it is in self inclusive of a thousand thousand other stories that are all, you know, happening in multiple places in multiple contexts. So it's the the paradigmatic theory of change here that that we have to have a coherent. We have to invite people into a coherent paradigm, or we need to, or or I, I'm just like searching around. Is it that? 
there needs to be the generation of a paradigm that people can like magnetize to embrace and then sort of Im that imbues their meaning making or is it that we need to break uh, the existing paradigm and let people come to whatever comes next or some combination of the two what's the what does it look like and feel like to be engaging at a paradigmatic level successfully it's a good question i i, I will I will leave this to David in a second, but I do think that um, people come to different perspectives lots of different ways, is, is my belief. I don't, think there is a, I don't think there is an answer to this. You know, I think there are people have you know, snap revelations. Some people evolve their perspectives over, over decades. Um, and I don't, think that there, I, I don't think there is a single, a single answer. I'm just, I'm just recognizing that as I personally go out and talk to people that there's an essential role that I'm a lot of people is trying to point to what potentials might look like and and that it changes the nature of how people see the world that they're in and it changes the nature of what they think is thinkable and therefore investable so I think it's just a, it's one piece of of what is needed so to the Direct question um, regarding paradigms. I spent many years exploring the foundations of Western cosmology and trying to pinpoint the the narrative that has catalyzed, particularly the the, the patriarchal dominant quest for transcendence, um, looking for how we leave this world to some other place that is still sort of on endless loop, it seems, within this particular, you know, uh, hyper-capitalist version of reality that some of the, the, the people that have been the greatest beneficiaries of the mass consolidation of wealth on the planet are, are caught within. And paradigmatically, well, after uh, quite a bit of uh, work to try to understand it myself, that was heaven or whether that was outer space um and what i came to appreciate was how blind that paradigm is to the nature of life itself that because life is in many ways um you know the substrate <laughs> of all experience that it's taken for granted at such an extreme degree that we've built an entire, not we, but the, the kind of particular socioeconomic structures have built an entire system based on the extraction of the living systems, reducing them to resources, and then perpetuating a particular story around the possibility of a very, very narrow version of growth. And from the paradigmatic level, I think that you know, as so many cultures um, have demonstrated throughout, you know, time immemorial is it's absolutely critical to understand our places and our world as being alive. And to understand that as the greatest con context and the greatest gift that we have could possibly imagined. Because what's happened in the past 50 years this has got a lot to do with the contemporary 
work that we're engaged in around sort of revisiting a lot of uh, the history of Gaia theory is the discovery, largely because of the space age, because of the, the quest for life elsewhere, we've, we've found out how extraordinary the conditions here are. And that has not yet made it into the dominant story. That is not actually part of the narrative that you get when you are subscribing to the kind of the heroic journey of science and technology and the scientific revolution and you know the the the, the, the sort of story of modern progress that all of that is an extraordinarily sort of anthropocentric eurocentric uh valorization of a of particular ways of knowing that are occluding and excluding so many other ways of knowing and practices that are about integrating with the living systems of the planet, that are about recognizing the aliveness of the world, that are about catalyzing possibilities for enlivenment of our own communities by connecting with all of these relations upon which we're dependent and to which we can contribute. But the foundational aspects of the paradigm that's sort of the water that, that so much of the, you know, the, the, the capital W Western world is swimming in um, has a lot to do with a disenchantment where we are no longer called upon to sing the world into existence, right? And I think that in, in a sort of broad sense, that's what so many of the people that are tapping into the notion of regeneration are, 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 are experiencing, that we have an active role to play in bringing the world to life. And it actually never went away, you know, that this has been sustained by cultures all over the world. There are plenty of examples. One of the reasons that we've been mapping these um, documentaries of regenerative projects all over the world is just to see the degree to which there are these patterns all over the place of people either continuing with very longstanding traditions of, of celebrating and participating within the aliveness of their places or rediscovering what the possibilities are through all kinds of you know new terms that actually harken back to old practices, oftentimes whether those are you know agroecology and water retention landscapes and all of the different like modalities there are for engaging the living the, the biophysical living systems. But I think paradigmatically, at at the root of it, is the recognition that this planet is actually alive, and that itself is so difficult to uh, to absorb because in many ways a lot of people are imagining killing it now <laughs> we sort of went from like a dead from from a planet of resources and extractable things to turn into capital to uh, we're killing the planet like, like created created giant dyson sphere computer brain <laughs> or something it's just like the, the sci-fi imaginary is, is like so transcendent. This is what I was talking about. I, w I wanted to understand like what was it within Western cosmology? What were the seated conditions that would catalyze particular views of, okay, we either got to go to Mars, we got to go to our neo colonies, we got to download our consciousness, but whatever it is, we got to get out of this corrupt place. You know, and it's deeply embedded in Greek philosophy. It's deeply embedded in the history of, of Christianity. And you know, and ironically, this is now being, it's a mythology and a cosmology that's being perpetuated under the guise of, of science and technology. Yeah, it's sort of a rewarmed re or warmed over yeah. version of the same kinds of ideas that have been taken. Yeah, sort of the, the Manichaean sort of like Gnostic dichotomy transcendence sort of 
that shows up in the Abrahamic religions and yeah. Yeah. And, and now I, yeah, what I'm hearing is um, if we're conscious of the larger historical arc, we're still firmly, very firmly, even like techno utopianism is, is another version of a long history of rewarmed basic philosophical precepts in which yep. we're, we're you know we as humanity need to escape the the dirty corrupt earth to go somewhere yep. else this was the hierarchy of the heavens this was the great chain of being and what what i discovered was that a lot of the the, the characters that are taking the mantle of science and technology and sort of declaring themselves you know the high priests of rationalism are in fact acting a lot like medieval catholic priests you know except they're in many in many ways they're they're less comfortable with the paradox do you, you care know? to name names uh not really i mean you know i, I think that, <laughs> that that you know what the audience that's fine <laughs> let, let the listeners discern for themselves because i don't i'm not really interested in picking specific fights i'm way more interested in how we're elucidating the terms of paradigmatic structures that enable us to see ourselves as part of the living whole. Okay, so let's and, get in. Let's get into. I, I, I'd really be curious to hear your perspective about this. So, I mean, I sort of like. I, I would say I'm in heated agreement with, you know, um, both the sort of um, historical paradig paradigmatic analysis of where we've been and and you know where we currently are and how that looks a lot like the past and. You know, I sort of think of, I, I think I awoke to that reality sometime, in, you know, in reading kind of like Robert Anton Wilson, you know, back, back in the day, I was like, oh. That was my triggered age, like 13. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was a little older than that, but I, you know, I was, I was maybe 18 or something when I was like, holy crap, you know, like his yeah. work on, you know, sort of the extraterrestrials, angels, sort of like the way that the, that these different things express, um, in, yeah. and, and paradigms and similarities. Anyway, so I'm curious. So just sort of like anchoring heated agreement. There's a lot of interesting things that we could geek out on there. That would be a lot of fun. I also, I sort of want to take a step back and sort of share personally that in, from my perspective and like what I'm trying to do in the world, I think currently the greatest threat to what, and this is going to be a provocative and um, I probably shouldn't say it sort of thing, but you know, fuck it. Um, the, 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 the greatest threat from my perspective about the theory of change that underpins region network is um, essentially like, like Charles Eisenstein and his um, community and that I like Charles. So I'm not saying that as to like enemy or other him, but my impression is, and, and this is, I'm sort of holding a moment, David, when you and I were sitting on stage together mm. a mm. couple of, a couple of climate weeks ago, you know, yeah. you know, a couple years ago in San Francisco yeah. climate week and sort of like, it feels like there's a, a fervent, an active uh, debate about the role of um, sense making, of how, of epistemology, of science 
in, in, and how that fits or does not fit in to, to a new way of um, engaging with, as, as an embedded member of a, of a living whole. Yep. And there's sort of this, there's sort of this narrative that, that there's elements that I agree with and there's elements that I find deeply problematic that I would say Charles Eisenstein is sort of um, a banner leader, a, ba a banner mm -hmm. holder for, um, that, you know, goes to thought, to th thinkers way before her, him as well, um, around yeah. what is problematic about reductionist and, and quantitative approaches to knowing. And, and my experience of Charles is that he's provocatively shaking the assumptions of someone, I'm not quite sure who, that he has in his mind as sort of like a, an archetype of, uh, of, a, of the old paradigm by sort of saying, you know, uh, quantifying nature, quantifying anything is problematic mm -hmm. and reductionist scientist, science is bad. Um, and I sort of experienced that as, okay, I, I mean, I don't disagree, but I also think that we, you know, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. That there's a need, a demand, an imperative for good science, for a quantitative approach, for, for striving to, to create mathematical and scientific models of reality that are embedded in and striving towards an articulation of and um, honoring of complexity, if that makes sense. But, yeah. but I experience that statement and that stance to be, off, to, to be considered threatening and yeah. downright like, like uh, pushed aside by a growing community of people that previously I considered to be sort of like kindred spirits or something. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I, and I just wanted to like, that, that's a provocation, an invitation. And I'd what? love to hear yeah. how that strikes you, what it brings up, what your thoughts are about that. I mean, I think fortunately this has been addressed pretty extensively, possibly by people that aren't included in the particular conversations you're talking about. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll step back a second, you know. We were at Climate Week, the Climate Summit together. Charles had spoken before us. He was on his tour for Climate, A New Story, and he was really challenging the quantification mindset, mm -hmm. right, and challenging a lot of the precepts underlying how it is that climate has been addressed from a very quantitative sort of IPCC modeling perspective. Yeah. Um, and, and he was, in that book, he brings forth a number of the characters and projects that I know we all celebrate and are, are, are fond of, right? Yeah. So I was, so, so I, I welcomed his, his challenge and his critique because I'd yeah. spent many years working within the quantitative scientific community actually specifically challenging the foundations of that being the only way of knowing that mattered because that would fail yeah. as, as a singular modality. That in order to understand and interpret complex systems, you had to take a much more, for lack of a better term, kind of transdisciplinary approach. Even transrational, perhaps. Transrational, I mean, transcultural, like <laughs> that, that, it was critical to be able to understand things from multiple perspectives through multiple ways of knowing. 
and so the the work that I that I was engaged in for many years was doing that in the context of Western Science Centers, working with uh, you know local bioregionalists, working with local you know tribes and communities, working with different scientists of different trainings. And so when I hear a critique that's kind of provoking a questioning of the quantification, to me that's nothing new. Yeah. That's like that's actually been around for a while. It's just coming from from someone who's actually you know widely read and well respected. Um, you know, if you recall during that during climate summit, I was showing a bunch of quantitative visualizations of planetary systems from NASA and NOAA and elsewhere. And I mean, in just a few weeks ago, Charles followed up and he was like, "Hey, can I borrow those for my presentation?" Yeah, um, because I think ultimately he's throwing that out as a provocation where it's, it's extraordinarily important and extraordinarily helpful. And he might be, if you kind of perceive it as he's trying to get to another level so that we're not just stuck in that one level. Mm -hmm. And I think the most gracious rendering of this can be found in Edgar Morin's uh, paradigm of complexity. If, if you look up his book on complexity, he talks about how critical reductionism is and how critical holism is and how critical it is not to be dualistic about separating yeah, these, exactly. you know, these elements of complex systems. And in my experience, just getting down on reductionism is a good way to isolate yourself from some of the people that we need the most mm -hmm. that are actually, you know, quite astute at particular forms of scientific inquiry. And if I could build on that, I mean, this is also what we, what we see, you know, the world of technology and in the in the context of the technology that gets developed in Silicon Valley, um, that in that world, quantification is essential to be able to do the work much of the time. And one of the things I thought was um, was very significant for me because for many years, I my primary constituency were engineers. Right, they were engineers who were dealing with the physical world. So they were mechanical, electrical, civil, structural engineers, and they were important as a constituency because they were moving such extraordinary amounts of material and burning so much, <laughs> so so much carbon every time they did that. And uh, any decisions they made had uh, significant repercussions on life systems um, and on what we might call resources. And so working within their context of, of quantification was very important. I think one of the things that was, um, that was really significant for me was realizing the value of being able to do sophisticated modeling of, in, you know, in the case of looking at buildings and, and being able to run calculations that, inc that incorporated uh, contextual information. So like if you're looking at a building, you'd be able to say, okay, this building is in this place with this climate, with, this, with the, these prevailing winds, with this path of the sun. And all of a sudden, the nature of what you're designing would change. And that's a really good use of quantification, right? That's a really good use of, of advanced and sophisticated modeling. And it required a particular um, approach to quantification, but it was also working with the fact that that is the nature of how many of our fellow humans work and think. And we want, you know, we want to be working with them in all the different ways. One of the things that I, that I will say about that, that, um, that was always really interesting for me, was that what quantification often did 
for designers or engineers is it, it gives the impression of specificity and, and therefore of truth. And mm -hmm. so you'd run an analysis in a computer and it would tell you, okay, this is going to be the carbon footprint of the product you're making or the energy use of the building or whatever it is, um, which is a very seductive idea. And people were very seduced by that. And so you end up with people working towards whatever it is that that target is supposed to be, what the hottest thing is, energy intensity, carbon footprint, whatever it has been in the last 15 years. So you end up, you know, optimizing for certain things. And as Amory Lovins would say, pessimizing for others. Um, and the other thing was that people were attached to those numbers. And actually the numbers often did something different, which was they gave you a direction. They were better used as heuristics than yeah. they were as specifics. And that probably was the, the toughest thing to contend with. It's sort of a subtle point around how do you use quantification and tools is how do you use that, use, use feedback from a computer model or something and have that say, oh, that tells me I should adjust the building. That tells me I should look at the water flow a different way, as opposed to it telling you the truth about what will actually happen when you build the thing and you throw humans and complexities into it. But it was, these are really important tools and not um, just as they're important at looking at, at scientific visualization. Um, and I think fundamentally also because people who are trained in quantification are some of the most powerful allies that we have. And the challenge that we have is to help them uh, see what else could be looked at and explored and added to algorithms and having those things change and evolve the more we know. And so if I could flip that on its head now. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that I think part of the challenge of being within paradigms of quantification is a failure to recognize um, paradox. And the language of paradox in many ways is, is poetry. And the ways in which we integrate quantitative reality and understanding with our own capacity for poetic imagining and aesthetic imagining has everything to do with the way that we build our worlds, right? And so oftentimes the, the quantitative worldview sort of sees, you know, beauty and desire and, and aesthetics and and poetics as a sort of a nice to have thing that's, you know, you, you'll, you'll beautify something. This is, this is a trope. This is a total trope within scientific visualization to the degree that it was like absolutely not trusted for many, many years on the part of like real scientists, right? Until you realize that it isn't just a matter of lying when you try to make something or, 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 or it is beautiful. You're not trying to just put a marketing spin on it because it's not about the market. That to pull out the beauty that's inherent within the flows and the metabolisms and the relationships within these living systems is absolutely essential to get to a deeper truth than what the quanti quantified numbers are revealing. Yeah. And this is a very difficult thing to understand when you're told that all of reality can be reduced to number. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like I, I, I mean, the um, the Douglas Adams um, line, you know, what's the the answer to life, the universe, and everything, you know, and it and it's a number, and um, yeah. 
Well, yeah, he was my Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah, and so what does that mean, right? And so there's a, <laughs> there's a sense I have for, from my perspective and the work that we do at Region Network around the, the appropriate role of quantification in generate as heuristic, as a heuristic tool to visualize change and create consensus around the aspirational state that a group of people in a place would like to commit to together. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, that is not an exercise in getting the right answer. It's an exercise in everyone being able to see models and representations and kind of like use the innate power of human pattern recognition to allow that to calibrate a collective sense-making process, essentially, right? And that's what I, I think, so there we are, it's maybe like a, a, a bid or a candidate at the, the way in which, and I mean, with that said, I kind of want to actually push on something you were saying, David, which was that there is a quantitative worldview. I'm not sure that that's true. I don't know that there's a quantitative paradigm. I'm curious, but when you said it, I was like, is that true? Or does, or does the quantitative show up differently at different worldviews? And the particular expression of a quantitative ex uh, approach that, for instance, Charles is pushing against, but I think he's identifying it. He's like saying that's the paradigm. And I guess what I'm saying is, is that the paradigm or is that just how? The, yeah. um, th this sort of like innate process shows up at, at a paradigm that we could name something else. And yeah. the same process will look very different at a yeah. sort of living systems paradigm level. Well, I mean, regarding the, the question about worldview, I, when I, I, if I said quantitative worldview, I, I would have been referring to the myth that <laughs> all of reality can be quantified. Bless you that that's a particular story right yeah. that that is is the perpetual quest that all universes that all the world is number and that we are living and this is the, essentially the platonic story right that we're we're just seeing the shadows of an ideal realm and that is very specifically laid out within you know beginning with his with plato's timaeus and he's describing this architect this demiurge this creator on the outside of the world constructing the world and so this tacit assumption that there's a foundational reality made of number beyond this sort of imperfect manifestation in which we're inhabiting is is foundational to much of the belief that emerged out of the seeds that plato planted mm -hmm. right and it took all you know many different forms but i think the way that it manifests now is that emphasis on science and technology and quantification as the way to achieve a synoptic god's eye view on the world that is somehow like ultimately objective and outside of the world and can give us the godlike view right and i think that it's it's precisely that assumption that that's possible that 
every the, the, the irony is that every time we get close to trying to achieve that, we find out the paradox that we cannot unsituate ourselves. We cannot take ourselves out of context. There is no ultimately objective view. That, that the complex systems work in such a way that trying to achieve that is one thing. Insisting that it can be achieved is what keeps getting turned over and challenged again and again and again. So it's not that attempting to achieve some type of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of intersubjective empiric, empirical validation of like material truth, right? Which is essentially what science is doing. Like that, that, that type of radical pragmatism to, to validate that something is occurring through multiple different measurements, like that's great. But to confuse that with the totality of reality and to say that we don't have an active role in shaping that reality and or perceiving that reality is the, the fallacy of that particular worldview that, I th that, you know, from the quantum revolution to all of the weirdness in cosmology to like all of the situated knowledges to like all of the science and technology studies critique, like, you know, there are realms of study that have deconstructed that particular assumption. Yeah, do and you think anybody to... still believes that? Yeah, I do. Because I think that, that everything. Well, I mean, I, I, as I was mentioning, some of those like people that are the the high priests of science, and now to be like the the spokespeople for climate change, right? That that that, that they have the solutions and they have the answers, right? And they're not actually address. I mean, and oftentimes. I mean, you experience this directly, man. Like, okay, so the answer is reduction of CO2. You know, we got to stop, stop carbon emissions. Okay, well, turns out we completely, you know, <laughs> ignored land use. And we completely ignored all the relationality that comes with the, the, the capacity to, to work with and relate to places, yeah. right? So that, that quest for quantification actually leads down some very dangerous reductionist rabbit holes whereby now you've got people that are like strong advocates for climate change and their entire realms of existence that are off of their radar because they try to reduce such a complex system to something extraordinarily simple so that they can go out and just have the answer. And it's the PPM. danger of all of Yeah, okay, I got it. You know? So it's like yeah. the PPM fixation. Yeah, Parts per no, million. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and in, and in, and also in ordering, like that. There's a the tendency to put things in order of priorities, and therefore take those order of priorities and put them across a linear timeline. We're going to solve first, solve first for the climate emissions problem, and once we've done that, that'll be good. And then ten years hence, we're going to start working on the land thing and the ag thing because that's going to be a problem too. But we got to wait on that because because this other thing is so important. I encounter that kind of stack ranking of prioritization all the time. And that, you know, there's, there's a part of it that's, that's been kind of fed by the need to look at climate systems and for people to see the importance of those things. And I understand it. But it's, I had a conversation like three days ago with a guy who was a biogeochemist who'd spent many years working in the Amazon. And who, but because of the nature of his work now, which involved managing a an organization or the sustainability of an organization, looking at its buildings, looking at its energy use. He had gotten to a point where he was just like, well, we need to address first 
the climate thing and then later we'll deal with the land thing. I'm like, you're a biogeochemist who worked in the Amazon and you're telling me that because he was working within the constraints of what he saw every day. Yeah. And so it's not to say that what he wanted to work on first was problematic. I think it made lots of sense. Great, yes, you've got fossil fuels and lots and lots of buildings and that's the thing you need to deal with because you're not in charge of federal lands or large-scale agriculture or anything like that. So, but, it, but it's interesting how people will take, I think, this is, this is the thing that, that I find myself most frustrated by, is that all of this is important work, right? Like we need to, do, we need to deal with the energy use in, in the buildings and the fossil fuel sector and everything. All of that needs to be addressed. But it's the tendency to see those prioritizations um, that are then underpinned by a certain form of carbon reductionism um, that then leads to seeing everything as zero sum. Like we need to do this first and let's divest from looking at land because, and, and let's divest from it financially, divest from it as, as, a, as a narrative, divest from it as a story that we're telling because it needs to come later after we solve the thing that's most important to me based on my... To bring this back to the beginning of the conversation, <laughs> if you recall, Robert Anton Wilson was a big fan of Korzybski and non-Aristotelian logic, mm -hmm. right? That in everything we're discussing, at the root of it, is the challenge that emerges from dualistic logic, mm -hmm. right? That the idea of non-zero sum, the idea of disciplines, the idea of carbon versus land, it's an either-or logic that is so deeply embedded that came out of the same tradition with Plato and with Aristotle and then it just got overly simplified to where now we're operating on a particular paradigm, or not we, but you know, <laughs> the dominant logic of, of the zero-sum types of approaches and understandings has to do with an embedded logic of dualism. And the most important thing that I think we can be doing is to be cultivating the capacity to work within the context of complex logics so that we can see the world from multiple perspectives. This is what Edgar Morin writes about in The Paradigm of Complexity, mm -hmm. so that we're not having these debates that are sucking all the air out of the room about who's right and who's wrong. And it's also not just a matter of being like relativistic and not having a perspective. It's actually recognizing that the complexity of these systems as you can look at things from different octaves. You can look at things from, you know, different views and there are different types of truths. And that's just the way that living systems operate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, and I mean, and this was the, the <laughs> waves of controversy that Lynn Margulis created by suggesting that, you know, the, 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 the origin of species was actually this weird combination of competition and, and collaboration. It's like endosymbiotic coming together that it's even uh, uh, an anthropocentric overlay to talk about competition and cooperation, right? Mm -hmm. That the world is far more subtle and complex in terms of how the dynamics of our relationships unfold. And so the idea that we have to fight to be right or wrong about how it is we're healing the living systems can actually like, I mean, there, there are practical implications because people argue that so they can get their funding, so that they can get, get attention. But I think that we cannot forget that that tendency towards dualism is precisely, you know, why we're in so many difficult conversations that can't seem to be resolved. Yeah. Well, that's, that feels like a good um, <clears throat> summary of essentially the, that 
And I think what I've been reacting to um, in, in how I perceive, which I could be um, myself falling into sort of the trap of having the wrong colored lenses in my glasses, um, what I perceive in Charles's provocation is exactly that, like a, just like expressing the currently unpopular side of, dual, of a dualist trap. Yeah. Instead of instead of inviting the next level of like demanding the next level of interpretation of a non-dual um, multi-term, maybe three instead of two <laughs> term system that just allows us to sort of like, oh, OK, what is it that brings together the qualitative and quantitative in in a present moment of experience that reconnects us? instead of separating us from the context, back to the context, yeah. right? This is reflected pretty deeply in the field of environmental ethics, actually, and the ways in which people are, are focused on sort of oftentimes anthropocentric perspectives where everything's being concerned, you know, concerning itself, largely like with TEAB and a lot of the ecosystem services stuff and the world is reduced to a bunch of resources that we're going to quantify so that we can understand what all the services are doing. And on the other side, you've got kind of deep ecology, ecocentrism. There's intrinsic value in life itself. And, you know, damn your quantification because you're actually reducing this to something. You know, so you've got these like two perspectives that I think both have extremely valuable things to contribute, you know. And so I find myself not subscribing to either one of them but yeah. also subscribing to both of them yeah and 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 to to your point like it, it, at least for me the reconciliation has come from the perspective of rel relationality that there's been some wonderful work done on mm. um what's called kencentric ecology within particularly like many indigenous traditions like specific traditions in mexico and you know various uh, turtle island uh tribes, but it, it's looking at how do you put kinship at the center? Mm -hmm. And and when you do that, when you in, in, within environmental ethics, it's often called relational values. But when you look at relationality, you can see the role that both quantification and qualification, that both extrinsic and intrinsic values play to, to see the whole system. And I think that that's extremely important um, in terms of the types of work that you're doing, um, to be able to address how critical the relations are. Because I know you personally have spent a lot of time, you know, understanding how, how to look at holes and you can't just like, like quantify, you know, you look at your, your, your children and it's like the, no matter of quantification is going to tell you about the essence of your kids. You know? Yeah, but, but on the other hand, having a having a thermometer when exactly. you have a fever it's is helpful to know what their temperature really is. Really helpful. So, yeah. Totally. So so I think that it's very important to hold that space so that we're not falling into those those arguments in in any prolonged way because yeah. they actually get in the way of seeing the whole. I, I, I heated agreement, yeah. I think that's well framed in terms of I mean, sort of hearkening back to I studied environmental ethics you know, in, in college and, Oh, I didn't know that. Huh? And that, um, argument between the anthropocentric utilitarian perspective that's trying to meet, you know, the market where it's at and then provide an on-ramp and the sort of like deep ecology, deep green resistance, like, you know, 
don't doesn't want to hear any of that um, is so. And I guess what I was pointing out is I actually feel like that that like falling into that battle is the greatest risk. That's the yep. greatest risk. And and totally. th- there is no there at least from my perspective there's such deep complementarity to yeah. sort of like it's like you can't operate with just a left or a right brain. Yeah. <laughs> you need both. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, it also feels like there's I mean it's I think it's important to recognize the role that fear p- plays in this as well that there's a tendency for people to work with the systems they know. And, and also I think as more and more people become more sophisticated and, and more aware of the dynamics of what are, what's happening at a planetary scale, at a local scale, just what's happening in terms of climate and ecosystem collapses, that it creates a lot of fear and that fear means that people are grasping for answers that they can be familiar with and the simpler, the better. And that that's a, there's a, an agility that we all need, I think, to cultivate, to be able to engage in those conversations, to be able to then help people see that, that holding a silver bullet, that holding a duality, that holding a quality over quantity or vice versa is actually not an effective way forward. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that's like, that's a daily practice is figuring out how do you have conversations with people who have, because of their fear, especially if they've only come into awareness of a lot of these issues really recently so they're completely freaking out they're still in that total intense zone of freaking out that many of us are so familiar with that we have to remain agile and able to talk with them through it because i think it informs how or it, it, it's some it's somehow related to how people are, are grasping um particular types of solutions or particular types of ideas yeah yeah beautiful so now I sort of want to segue a little bit in our conversation and ask um, who or what is inspiring you right now? Um, what, what, are, what are you reading? What are you coming across? What movements or projects are feeling like particularly enlivening and sort of like, like they're, they're sort of like breadcrumbs leading towards this sort of... Um, reconciliation that I think we just sort of um, started to get a glimpse of understanding what it might feel like. Mm, love this question. <laughs> we'll give you a reading list, 10 pages yeah, long. Yeah, what do we got, 20 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, just this morning, I was listening to a, a podcast with Lila June uh, on For the Wild, which was pretty remarkable. Um, and a lot of the work that we're doing right now is research with uh, different characters who are coming, who, 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 who par- whose parents are like from very different cultures or they, or they grew up in like very different places over the course of their childhood. And so in a, in a lot of ways, this kind of post-dual, I don't even think it is non-dual, it's kind of like this post-dual sensibility is embodied. And, and Lila June's one of these characters. Like I think she has a European father and a, and a DNA mother, but like I, I, I'm, I'm really, uh, intrigued by folks that are embodying these like mini worlds, you know, because in, in my case, I had to like achieve a sort of escape velocity to get out of my upbringing as a Southern Baptist and then discover all of these other things. And, you know, and, and the more that I'm able to work with people that have been inhabiting many worlds, uh, the, the, the more, the easier it is, I find actually to 
sort of work with a lot of the complexity of of these systems. I mean, and along those lines, I've really been appreciating a lot of the writing around uh, commoning lately. Um, that not just the commons is the idea of a, of, a, of a resource, is a common pool resource, but the practices of commoning, because they really integrate this kind of complex, embodied, you know, relational understanding of how it is that we form bonds and trust and relationships that are absolutely essential to be able to do the work that needs to be done right now. And, you know, and the, I don't know if you, you saw, but the Disco Manifesto was just released as a, yeah. you know, distributed cooperative organizations as a kind of a response to the, the decentralized autonomous organizations, right? To really bring back in this notion that we cannot offload our trust and we cannot offload sort of the dynamics of relationality to just a technical infrastructure. And the, the, the book Free, Fair, and Alive, um, was published last month looking at like this, what they call the triad of commoning, which are all of these principles around how like building on Eleanor Ostrom's Nobel prize winning work, but looking at what are all the different ways and, and patterns of commoning um, across the world. And for, for me, like a, a lot of this, this, this understanding of various cultural practices and the pack track and the, and the patterns within those practices are really starting to help me to see how this notion of commoning can be seen within all of these traditional indigenous communities, as well as within ecosystems. And Andreas Weber writes about this, like that the reality is commoning, <laughs> the biosphere <laughs> it evolved through commoning. And for me, that's extremely enlivening from the perspective of being able to point to what it is that we can be doing beyond the market and the state to recognize what is required for care. Like how do we create a culture of care? How do we really take into account the household work that's being done? How it is that we feed back into and support and cultivate the commons? That all of the regeneration work, I think, is, is, is absolutely contingent on our ability to understand and exercise those practices. Yeah. There is always an infinity of amazing analysis and nonfiction things to read. Um, I think that balancing those with the lyrical and the poetic feels really important right now. I've, I've been really appreciating um, the work that the Emergence podcast has been doing in terms of just creating these very beautiful, um, some of the most beautiful read essays uh, that, I've, that I've heard that just help drop the listener into a universe and into a, a deeper sort of understanding of landscapes and land and places um, in a deeply poetic way. That's been really awesome. We listened to a lot of it while, uh, while driving uh, with our six-year-old through Vancouver Island and sort of bouncing between, moving between um, beautiful ancient um, ancient old growth and freshly destroyed clear-cut landscapes and back and forth. And it, it was a you know, beautiful and horrifying uh, uh, soundtrack to that experience and to that trip. Um, 
And, you know, also just in this last week, I, I was revisiting Priya Parker's work on the art of gathering, how to, how to have conversations across, um, and how to have effective conversations, how to talk with each other. And that's, that's also come up as, as really essential to a lot of this work. Uh, and then more in the kind of like, I'm, you know, as I alluded to at the beginning, like I spent so much time in the technical world of green building and this and that, and I'm now feeling like I'm backfilling my knowledge around ecological design by, you know, being many years behind you. And we've, we've, we've started training and doing a, a year round permaculture design course um, up at the Commonweal Garden here. And so we're kind of diving into a lot of the, the basics. Like there's some things that we know deeply that are incredibly familiar that, that have been our work for many, many years. And then when it comes down to like soil science and <laughs> and uh, and many other things that we managing managing that humanure pile, <laughs> yeah, realizing the the universe of things that we don't yet know. So I, I wouldn't even begin to to uh, to know where to direct people. But I am appreciative of um, of opening up that inquiry and having a, a deeper understanding of of really what's what's happening under our feet. Yeah, I definitely echo the um, everyone should take a permaculture design course sort of. Um, I mean, there's there's such a great connection with just practical, a practical vision of what it is to day to day, day in, day out, live in a way that um, is designed in such a way to sort of like create an ergonomic fit between human health and ecological health. You know, mm-hmm. um, that that's a, yeah, yeah uh, th- it's actually something I would love to, maybe, maybe this is a bookmark, but it would be super fun to, I, at some point I want to re-engage with education of that sort and um, be doing that for sort of by and for the, the people. I mean, if there's one theme I'm taking away from this podcast, it's around how much we need people who are deeply intelligent and talented at the quantitative um, sciences um, to be committed to a, a post-dual, complex, dynamic, poetic love affair with the earth and how, how creating invitations, as many as we can, for that community of highly intelligent, highly skilled people to be sort of um, bringing the tools that they've um, spent years cultivating to bear um, with the sort of, yeah, the imperatives of our day, which are, you know, I think taking that 3% chance that we have to (laughs) avoid systemic collapse and, uh, you know, increasing it exponentially over the next generation from three to six to 12 and just keep going up you know i think we could probably get up there so it's if you're going to toss a coin it's we're just a little bit over half that it's gonna come up um beauty (laughs) so yeah those are great great invitations um i'll do my best to um make a little bit of a list for folks who are listening of those um I have to admit that's not one of my strong suits. So if, if you two want to like, <laughs> yeah. a, a short list, I'll, I'll try to include that in show notes. Um, yeah, gladly. I mean, and, and another aspect that we've been exploring pretty deeply is a lot of the work around rights of nature. Yeah. Um, and the sort of 
strange, <laughs> paradoxical realm of how to embed structurally a recognition of other entities, of non-human entities, right? That, and, and what it boils down to is the same thing it boils down to with a lot of the commons, which is an ontological shift, an understanding of ourselves as part of a greater whole. And what's, what's really fascinating about the rights of nature work is that so many you know, indigenous communities are actively involved in that because they see it as a way to, to structurally engage in that recognition. And, and it, but, but at the same time, it's also like very conservative communities, like one in Pennsylvania, I think that was the first one to pass anything in, in the US. And so there's, there's a you know, post-dual meeting ground around how it is that we start to recognize the absolute critical importance of the forests and of the various you know, things that we call species. But, but ultimately, it's back to the relationships that we have, what relationships do we value, how are we valuing those in both the quantitative and the qualitative sense? And I think that that, that fundamental need to shift from the dualistic subject, object, individual, collective into a much deeper understanding as all of ourselves as part of a greater context, as part of a greater nested whole, is at the heart of the paradigm that we opened, you know, discussing. Like that that by seeing the world as a living nested system, we can begin to experience ourselves and, and, and all of the other entities at whatever scales as being absolutely essential within these living systems. Yeah, <clears throat> I love it. Well, um, we're sort of getting up here towards the top of the hour and I'm gonna have to do a, a hot swap into a another sort of just the next phase of me wrapping up my Friday. Um, I am enormously grateful for, for both the work that you two do in, as individuals and as a, as, a, as a couple, as a collaborative, um, and the work that Spherical is leading. Um, we didn't even get to dive to, I mean, I think we were in the realm of sort of Gaian systems dynamics and design, but uh, we didn't get to explicitly bring, surface that so much. Um, so perhaps that's an invitation to, to do this again soon. We'd love to. We would love Thank it. you so much. Any for, excuse to hang out. Time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I hope to see you soon. Likewise.